there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you had to list out the jobs that you do for free, if you could afford to, wouldn't reviewing movies be on it? I mean, who doesn't love watching movies? And we all have opinions about them. Well, not only does my next guest get paid to review movies, but it's also been her full-time gig for 20 years. But before I introduce you to Anne Hornaday, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Anne Hornaday, the chief film critic at the Washington Post and the author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. After graduating from Smith College with a degree in government, not film or theater, Anne got a job at Ms. Magazine in New York City, where she worked as a fact checker in the research department. And eventually, she had the good fortune to land a job as the administrative assistant for none other than the co-founder of Ms. Magazine, Gloria Steinem. In fact, it was Steinem who encouraged Anne to follow her interests and become a full-time freelance writer, which is exactly what she did. Freelancing for Ms., for Us Magazine, where she wrote about celebrities, and another New York City-based magazine called Premier, which focused on filmmakers. And thanks to a whole lot of hustling, within a few years, Anne had honed her craft to such a degree that she started landing writing gigs at the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, focusing on film-related stories. Then, in 1995, Anne was offered a full-time job to work at the Austin American Statesman newspaper in Austin, Texas, as their film critic. From there, she moved to Baltimore, where she was a movie critic at the Baltimore Sun. And in 2002, Anne was hired as a film critic at the Washington Post, where she has spent almost the last two decades. In 2008, Anne was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, with the prize committee citing her perceptive movie reviews and essays reflecting solid research and an easy, engaging style. By the way, if you want to learn more about how to break into this field and become a film critic or maybe even an entertainment reporter, please check out the show notes for this episode to see if Anne's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Anne, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thank you. So I am guessing that the first question on the minds of our listeners, Anne, is how do you actually unwind on the weekends? Do you still watch movies? (laughs) Or does that feel too much like work? 
know, I do. I love going to the movies, and that is definitely something I will do of a weekend, but I also love going to the theater. We have a wonderful theater scene. I still live in Baltimore, and we have terrific theater here. We actually just went to a play with friends this past weekend and had a wonderful time, and I am still a reader. I grew up loving to read, and my favorite form of relaxation is still a good book. And then, like everybody else, I am a addict. TV and streaming, it's just so hard to tear yourself away now from all these wonderful series. I know. I I'm know. just as bingy as everybody else. So I try to tear myself away from the screen, though, and make sure I have the book going at all times. Good for you. And we should also let our listeners know that we are doing this interview in mid-February which means that you have just wrapped up coverage of the Super Bowl of the movie industry, the 92nd Academy Awards, also known as the Oscars, in which we saw some Oscar history getting made. The first non-English language film, Parasite, which won Best Picture, in addition to picking up another three Oscars, including Best Directing. Do you think, Anne, that the Oscars have evolved in any other ways over the years that you've been covering them? That's a great question. Yes, they've evolved. I would say they've changed. In the years that I've been writing about film, that period really did coincide with Hollywood doubling down on these comic book movies and they call them tentpole films, but, you know, like The Avengers and Spider-Man and films that have lots and lots of potential to have sequels and spectacle and lots of special effects. And what that has meant is that the movies that I feel like I grew up with in the 1970s, that kind of movie, they're geared toward grown-ups. They don't have a lot of explosions. They're more about character and story. They have really become the purview of independent distributors. And the way that they have garnered attention for those movies is the award season. So we've really seen these two different business models emerge. One is the tentpole business model, which we associate with summertime and big boffo blockbusters. And then the award season, which is usually the fall. And I think over the course of that time, the Oscars have become more oriented toward small independent films and not as oriented toward mainstream mass appeal movies that a lot of us feel like we all grew up with and that we all watched. I was interested this year, even though I was not a huge fan of Parasite, I was really excited that it won. I think it's a milestone and it should be celebrated. But I was really struck with the fact that so many big studios were in the game this year. We had movies from Warner Brothers. We had movies from Sony. We had movies from Universal. We had movies from 20th Century Fox, which they had purchased. And so that, to me, was heartening because it told me that the studios still want to make that kind of movie. And most of them had really done very well. So that was good news. How do you prepare, if at all, for reporting on the Oscars? And I should say, not just the Oscars, but all the award ceremonies throughout the year because there are really a lot of them. Do you see it as your job to cover the most buzziest movies? I don't know if that's a word or or the ones that aren't getting the attention they deserve. That's another great question. The way that I prepare for award season is I go to the Toronto Film Festival. The Toronto Film Festival occurs immediately after Labor Day up in Canada. It's about a week and a half, and that is usually where award season begins. There are three festivals that happen right in a row, Venice, Telluride, and Toronto. And Toronto is the 
final one. And between those three festivals, that's where the major awards contenders are going to be launched. And so that's my chance to see them and to assess them. And it's funny because it's like, I don't really feel that it's my job to handicap the Oscars. I don't think I'm a big influencer (laughs) in terms of like, this is it. This is a surefire Oscar nominee. But I do, again, my big, my main focus is my readers and what will help them navigate what's to come. And so, yes, I will find movies there that I will want to advocate. I think a, a good example of this in 2019 was Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which was just a fantastic film about Fred Rogers. Tom Hanks played Fred Rogers. It was such a good movie. And it really didn't get a lot of love during award season. He was nominated, but I thought it deserved much more attention than it got. So I tried to kind of do my part. I wrote a very positive review of the film and tried to write about it in other contexts. But there's no doubt that the award season, even though it seems silly on the outside, and it can be, and it can be profligate and kind of over the top, it really does bring a lot of attention to movies that otherwise wouldn't be getting nearly that amount of audience. So I think it's all to the good, ultimately. Okay. So What do you think the role of the film critic is? And is that role evolving in an era in which everyone thinks they're a film critic? Well, I am blessed to work in a town that still goes to the movies. And I'm sure you know this. We have great theaters. We have chains, but we also have the landmark theaters and we have wonderful theaters like the Avalon and the AFI and lots of embassies and museums and cultural institutions that are devoted to film and show really, really interesting film programs. So I still feel that the Washington Post readers, my readers, they do come to the Post to read these reviews. It means something to them and they take them to heart and they will respond accordingly. So I think that's my main role is to kind of help my readers Think about the films that they might want to see, the films that they have seen, be a useful intermediary between the work and the potential audience. But to your point, the writ large, I do think the practice of criticism has become democratized, which is one of the reasons I wrote my book is because I think since everybody's a critic, maybe I could help in terms of like, here's how to be one, (laughs) because we all must be, you know, we're surrounded by visual media. I do think that the role of the critic, I'm not sure that we can make or break a movie the way that maybe Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert might have in the days of The New Yorker and Siskel and Ebert. But I've been told that with little movies that open up in D.C., we still can really help. If we love something, we can help by advocating for it. And conversely, we can really do damage to a movie if we don't like it, especially these little ones. And if people are on the fence about seeing them, a negative review in the post can actually really hurt that movie. So I take that seriously. I would never want to strangle something in the crib unnecessarily. If I think there's a valid, genuine audience for it, I want to make sure that they can find it. Yes. I read an interview that you gave, Anne, and you said that when you review movies, you usually have two audiences in mind, the natural constituency of that film and the general audience. Can you break that down for our young listeners and explain how you go about trying to reach both of these audiences in your reviews? Yeah, I mean, that has become especially important in this era of these tentpole movies. When you think about franchises like Harry Potter or Twilight or The Avengers, that's the core constituency. The studio wants to please that the movie was made for and that I think it's important that I at least try to understand 
what they're looking for and what would constitute doing well by them. What's interesting to me is when something like an event, look, I am not an Avengers comic book fan. I was not familiar with them. I don't go to Comic-Con. But I think by and large, those movies have transcended their core audience to become general interest, really entertaining movies in their own right. And I think that's what interests me is when something can kind of go beyond that core audience to become something bigger. And so that's what I'm trying to ascertain as I'm evaluating it. Okay. So the statement that you made about the two audiences, does that only apply to the tentpole type movies? No, because I think it could apply even to those little small art house movies that we were talking about. Just this week, I'm viewing a little movie from Georgia, the country of Georgia, about Georgian dance, about the folk dance of Georgia, and a young man kind of finding himself within that context. So that seems on its face to be kind of niche and maybe of interest only to people who are conversant in that language or know that culture or have an interest in dance. But really, it's a coming-of-age story that's universal and I think would be appealing to just about anybody. It's very much in that tradition of Bend It Like Beckham or My Beautiful Laundrette, even Flashdance. You have moments of that. So I think anything can kind of transcend whatever people think of its niche value and become something that's of much more general interest. I'm so glad that you brought up that Georgian film because... I'm curious how you decide what to write about and what to review. That is actually a matter of loose consensus. Um, we have my colleague, Michael O'Sullivan, who also reviews movies for The Post and does the yeoman's work of scheduling and organizing all the reviews and the screenings. We basically have a system where we'll initial things that we're interested in or want to review. And often that's a factor of a function of what I've already seen. Sometimes I will have seen things at a festival so I can do it. It just saves time. And then the other factor is scheduling the screenings. Who can cover what screening? It varies. Sometimes we can see things several weeks in advance. Often it's the week of. So then it's just logistics. Who can be here then and who can make the schedule work? So it's kind of a loose amalgamation of convenience and time management and interest. And to be transparent about it, if I have zero interest or even negative interest in something, it's like if something just actively puts me off... <laughs> then I think our policy really is to try to find a reviewer who will go in wanting to like something. It's always who will best serve our readers in terms of giving a movie the best shot that it can have. So if Michael has a predisposition to have an interest in a Spider-Man movie, then I think he's the one who should see that. So yeah. we kind of base it on all of that. For me, it would be the horror movies. <laughs> I don't want to exactly. see any of them. I do I, not like horror. That's a very good example. And I'm not in a position where I can just categorically say, like, I'll never see a horror movie. But like you, I'm past the age where that has fascination for me. <laughs> now, I think plenty of really interesting work has been done in horror. Like Get Out being one example and Quiet Place being another. I thought both of those were just fantastic. And I'm so glad I saw them. But when it gets into the torture porn and body horror and things like that, then we might try to find someone who will at least understand it from the viewer's point of view of what they might want to see. But yeah, that is one genre where I would probably try to exercise some caution. I'm glad you brought up those two movies because I actually did see them with my son who loves horror movies. And it wasn't as gory. It was definitely there was blood in it or in both, but not, no, actually not in uh, A Quiet Place. But it no, was, not really. yeah, it was more psychological, which I can, yeah, I can stomach that. 
we can take that, yes. It's yes. just that gore, that that gratuitous blood gore is probably a function of age, but I do find that I'm getting less and less patient with it as I get older. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so take us into a typical day for you, Anne, or maybe a typical week. How many movies do you watch on any given week? And do you still go into the theater to watch these movies? Or are you watching them at home on the couch? And do you take notes while you're watching them? Yes, it's actually one of each. We still see them in theaters. They'll be evening previews at theaters around Washington at Mazda Gallery or Gallery Place or AMC Georgetown or Landmark E Street with an audience. Last week, I saw the movie The Photograph with Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield with a full audience at Mazda Gallery. I like that because that's the way you should see a movie. You should see it on a big screen with an audience because that's the way the filmmaker intended it to be seen. So that's really the ideal circumstance to see something They showed that on a Wednesday night. The movie opened Friday. So unfortunately, that was too late for us to get a review into the paper. Generally, they'll show a big movie like that on a Monday or a Tuesday night for us to be able to get a review in by Friday. But then, like you said, for smaller things, they will send links now via email and I will watch those on my laptop, which just breaks the heart of every filmmaker out there because that's not exactly what they had in mind. But it's better to see something in that venue than not see it at all. At the busiest time of year during that award season crunch, I could see as many as five, six, seven movies a week in a combination of theatrical screenings. But like this time of year when it's a little bit quieter, it's probably maybe two or three, maybe one or two a week. And yes, I do take notes. I take notes to jot down just details that I might want to include in the review, words that occur to me as good descriptors, because I'm very interested in conveying what it's like to watch something without I don't want to get too bogged down in synopsis, but I do want to give readers an idea of just what it feels like to be watching something. So any words that occur to me while I'm watching, I'll jot down bits of dialogue, especially if it's a comedy, jokes that might give people a sense of the humor of something, just anything that will help readers to kind of figure out what it feels like to be watching it. Terrific. What advice do you have, Anne, for our young listeners, especially those who are still in college right now, who may want to get into this career track beyond, of course, reading your book, Talking Pictures, colon, How to Watch Movies, which I highly recommend they do, because I want our listeners to know you didn't study movies or filmmaking when you were in school. You majored in government, as I said in the introduction, and you learned about movies and about reviewing, for the most part, on the job. Do you think that that actually turned out to be a better way for you to learn this medium? And if not, what type of classes do you think would be most useful for someone to take to prepare for a career as a film critic? It's funny because when I started out, I didn't have a big film education at my back. But then I've been writing for general interest, general reader newspapers since 1995. And I think learning on the job has definitely put me more in league with my readers than not. Most people don't see that many movies. I think the typical film goer only sees six or seven movies a year. So they're not in the vernacular of film theory. They don't know all the movies that Jean-Luc Godard ever made, you know, and I think that I am more on their level than not. And I think that actually is helpful. 
But I think if somebody is still in college and they are passionate about this, then by all means, they should take as much film as they can because A, they'll have a really good time and B, it'll help them understand what they're seeing and understand what goes into making a film so that they can then communicate to readers what the net effect of the movie is. I think also classes in art history. I did take that 101 art history class at Smith, which is famous and wonderful. And just learning about frame and perspective and iconography, those concepts, I still use those concepts when I review movies. And those are things I learned in that class. I think any kind of literature class, I still think government and political science helped me just because I think a lot of movies are very political and understanding kind of the social meaning of film is just as important as their aesthetics. So the main thing is really writing. The biggest challenge to any young age film critic is finding your voice and having a distinctive voice that's both authoritative, but also fun to read and accessible and distinctive and your very, very own. So that comes just from writing, you know, about anything, anything at all that you care about. So Again, I'm a big believer in the liberal arts general education, and I think that that really will serve them well going forward. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. And I have a confession to make. I didn't know what iconography was. I looked it up. If there's (laughs) anyone else out there, it is the visual images and symbols used in a work of art or the study of or interpretation of these. So I guess that makes sense. Well done, Andrea. Well, yeah. Hey, you know, I can type while I'm listening. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> so but you I see, would... that's in liberal arts. You know, it, that's why I love liberal arts education. It teaches us how to learn. It inculcates that lifelong learning, which I think this is what it's all about. Absolutely. I am a huge fan of liberal arts education. So I would love to flash back now, speaking of liberal arts, to when you were in college. As I said, you majored in government at Smith College. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Anne, and that major when you graduated? No, I really was at a crossroads when I graduated. I spent that summer, (laughs) I was so at a crossroads that I didn't leave Northampton. I worked for a professor. He was writing a book and I was doing some research for him on that book in order to buy time so that I could make up my mind. I really thought I would either go to New York to try to make it as a writer or go to Washington and get into the policy world. I'd studied Middle East politics and also political theory, but one of my concentrations was the Middle East and my idealistic self wanted to come to Washington and help solve the Arab-Israeli dispute. Um, oh, you're you're the one that's day, been missing. That was the missing that's link. Right. It's if my only fault. you had yeah, done that. It's on me. I know. It's like if I'd only... I feel a little guilty. <laughs> but uh, anyway, literally, I could have done one or the other. I mean, I cared so much about that issue and still do, honestly. And it just breaks my heart. You know, you do wonder what would have happened. But It came down to almost the fact that I knew more people in New York so that I could sleep on their couches when I was looking for a job. It was just, it was that practical. And so that's how it went. But I could have taken that other path if just a few circumstances had been different. And I probably would have had a very rewarding and interesting life there too. So it's funny how life turns out. But yes, I did know always that I wanted to be a writer. Writing was always something that I took easily to and frankly, got praise for. And I just think so much of your life 
follows what you get supported for and what you get responsive to and what you get praise for. And writing was definitely one of those things for me, even since I was in elementary school. I think that is such an important point that if you lean into what your own superpowers are, you'll find it's a great way, at the very least, to start your career. Play to your strengths, as Anne did. Agreed. So how did yeah. you get your first job, and what was it? In New York, my first job was as a researcher at Ms. Magazine, and this was very much a product of my social capital that I was lucky enough to have because I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, which is home to Meredith Publishing Corporation. And Meredith, of course, is best known for Better Homes and Gardens magazine, but Meredith had a huge printing operation and printed all sorts of different magazines, including Ms. And I was lucky enough to be good friends with the CEO of Meredith at the time, a wonderful man named Bob Burnett, who went to University of Missouri Journalism School, by the way. And I'm sure your listeners are all familiar with the good old informational interview where you basically call anybody that you know in any profession that you're interested in. And it's like what you're doing here with Time for Coffee. You have to go have a cup of coffee and find out about what's going on and where they work and if they're hiring. And Bob was kind enough to let me come in and talk to him about publishing and what was going on at Meredith. And he was the one who said, you know, I think you should talk to, there's a wonderful woman here named Rita Waterman who had worked at Ms. and then came over to Meredith. He said, you would just, you would just love her. She's the kind of person that you would want to be when you grow up. So I did. I went over and met Rita and she could not have been kinder. And she said, well, do you think you might ever want to work at Ms.? And of course, coming from Smith, that was a dream job. She picked up the phone and called her old buddies at Ms. There was a research job open, which is a very typical, classic, entry-level journalism job. And I typed up my resume on my old Smith Corona typewriter and sent it in. And I got an interview and I got that job. So it was just lucky, lucky, luck, luck, lucky all the way through. Well, it may have been lucky, but you were leveraging the contacts that you did have that you had already cultivated in your professional network before you had graduated. That is true. You know, it's funny because I don't think I ever thought that I did that. I mean, I do remember distinctly in those weeks that I had first arrived in New York calling everybody and just, again, going out for coffee, buying them a glass of wine, just to kind of talk about their job and how they got there and just introducing myself around. And we had talked earlier about hard skills, soft skills. Part of the soft skills of all of this is just being outgoing and brave about calling people. And then I guess just being open to whatever they have to say, instead of going in with an agenda, really truly going in more with curiosity and going with an idea of helping. How can I be helpful? How would I be able to be helpful to your enterprise? Or conversely, what's an enterprise I could be helpful in rather than I need a job? <laughs> Come with their interests in mind and whether or not you might be able to be a good fit with whatever they might bring up. Such a great point. And I had actually just jotted down while you were talking curiosity and then the word came out of your mouth because that is exactly it. And our young listeners are so fortunate because they have something that you and I did not. I mean, first of all, of course, the internet. But secondly, they have LinkedIn and right. they can use that resource to kind of cold call and reach out 
there's a whole methodology behind it, but reaching out to people, certainly in your alumni network. And then if you have particular companies that you're interested in, look for the younger people there. And as Anne says, grab a coffee with them, buy them a glass of wine, whatever it is to pick their brains and see how you could be helpful to them and if they have any advice for you. So Anne, I have two final time for coffee questions for you. Questions I try to ask all of my guests. Could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled? Maybe you face planted and wondered how you were going to recover from whatever had happened. I know that you freelanced for a number of years, but most importantly, I'd love to know how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. I don't even remember the specific circumstances now, but I do remember a time when I was freelancing in New York where I just wasn't getting the work. Bear in mind, I wasn't making lots of money. Even when I was starting my writing career, the way that I was supporting myself was being a freelance fact checker for different magazines. Generally, when a magazine was going into print, the last couple of weeks before it was going to press, they would hire a couple of freelancers to come in and help them fact check articles. And if you were good, you could make a pretty good living doing that. And that was kind of supporting my writing habit and also giving me good contacts. Like that's how I got into Us Magazine. But there was definitely a period where that was drying up and I wasn't making ends meet and I had to go. I became a temp. I was temping on Wall Street, being kind of a clerical temp for an insurance company down there. And I was kind of putting gigs together, just anything I could get, really. I helped fact check the doctoral thesis of a woman that was doing research on the New York Philharmonic. I helped a friend who was working at Knopf in her rights department. Anybody that would pay me any kind of money to do anything, I would do. Didn't have to have anything to do with journalism. But it was when I was working on Wall Street where I was thinking, gee... I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work or not. But I did persevere and the gigs came back. It turned out to be kind of a dry spell, but I recovered and I kept going on. And now, of course, in retrospect, I'm so glad I had that because it taught me that you don't die. You put it together, you figure it out, you make it work, and you just put one foot in front of the other until you get through it. The only way out is through and you just have to kind of buck up and keep going. So it ended up really building my confidence more than anything else. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And honestly, I have found a very similar mindset to be incredibly helpful. Just put your head down. Don't give up. Just gut it out. Really gut it out. If it's something that you want to do, find your side hustles. Find ways to pay the bills so that you can keep putting one foot in front of the other towards achieving whatever it is that really has captured your heart. Exactly. That period happened right before a big crash, a big Wall Street crash. And a lot of my friends were affected by that and it kind of threw them into a tizzy. And I felt so safe. I was like, you know what? No matter what happens, I know I can do it. I can put it together. It really did leave me feeling so much more secure in myself than before. I just, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Smith and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Anne, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, boy. Okay, here's one piece of advice I would give myself. Don't get in the habit of asking for extensions. 
<laughs> okay. That was the first time. Seriously, it was not until I got to college that I learned about this magical thing called an extension that you could go to your professor if you had a paper due. You could go to the professor and ask for an extension and often they will give it to you. And boy, that changed my life. And did I take advantage of that? And when you're a journalist, you don't get extensions. And that's not a good, it's just not a good habit to get into. I mean, I did take full advantage of it, but that was something I would be better off not knowing about. In terms of my curriculum, weirdly enough, I wish I had taken more literature classes. They didn't have film classes at Smith then, at least not that I know of. Obviously, if they had, I would have wanted to take those. But I almost wish I had taken more, more just the basic literature classes. Yeah. But it sounds like because you said you love to read and I didn't ask if it's fiction or nonfiction, but it sounds like you're kind of getting that literature self-taught in your free time. That's true. That's a good point. Good point. And I do love fiction. That's my relaxation is reading a good novel, just a good novel that you can get lost in and sink yourself into. So yeah, I kind of fashion my own literature 101 class and read Jane Austen for a year and <laughs> do some remedial remedial reading. <laughs> I don't think so. And before I say goodbye to you, I'm going to try to shoehorn one final question in here because I wouldn't forgive myself. And that is that I know, as we discussed in our Espresso Shots interview, that one of the biggest misperceptions is that your job is super glamorous because there's an awful lot that isn't. But one of the coolest things of your job has to be interviewing the celebrities. At least I would find that exciting. So how do you go about keeping the fangirl side of you in check? <laughs> and what is it like to get to hang out with like the George Clooney's and the Amy Adams and the Kate Blanchett's? Mm. Well, I can speak to George Clooney. I've never met Amy Adams or Kate Blanchett, unfortunately. I, those are my bucket list. I try to kind of go into these encounters thinking about them. And everybody loves to have their work appreciated and they're no different. They want to be loved. They want their work to be loved, but in a respectful way that doesn't kind of put them on the spot. I just don't want to put them in that position. I want to be professional. And my only goal in those encounters is to put them at their ease. And generally, that means not fangirling. That doesn't put them at ease. That just kind of makes them feel weird. And like, this is not a professional encounter. Yeah. So you don't do selfies? Absolutely not. Never, never. No, I would, you would never, ever see me doing a selfie with anybody or autographs or anything like that. I just, it would not happen. As a matter of fact, this is sort of name droppy, but the first time I met Bruce Springsteen after the screening of his movie, Western Stars, and his manager, the great John Landau, we were having a chat and I needed to leave and I was turning to go. He said, no, 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 wait a minute. And he was very nice to introduce me to Bruce. And that was lovely. And then again, I turned to go and John said, no, 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 we have to get a picture. And so it's not a selfie, but there's like this picture of me with these guys that captures a real thrilling moment in my life. But I would never, ever have asked for that. You know, it just would not have occurred to me. And I would never, ever do it. Well, I had to ask because if it was me, I certainly would be going for the selfies. <laughs> and <laughs> Anne is the author of 
talking pictures, how to watch movies. And if you want to learn how to break into this industry, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Anne's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Anne, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. My only regret is that I wasn't able to greet you in person with a hot mocha and a big bucket of buttery popcorn. (laughs) We'll put a rain check on that one. We'll do that another time. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.